This is LaQuest, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Hi, my name is Jen Hardy. I'm with LaQuest here with Joel Wolfork. Joel, what are we here to talk about today and uh, what makes it so important? Hey, Jen, we're here to talk about the issue of health inequality in the Black community and how two members of the California Legislative Black Caucus are addressing the issue. We sat down with Assembly members Mike Gibson and Akila Weber to talk about the social determinants of health and what they're doing to address public health in their communities. And Joel, what makes this topic so important? Well, as we enter Black History Month, this year's theme is Black Health and Wellness. And unfortunately, the inequities faced by the Black community have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's why we sat down with Assemblymember Mike Gibson and Akila Weber to share what they're doing to address this issue. Great, let's hear what they had to say. First of all, let me say I'm delighted to be on the show. I'm delighted to have my colleague with me, uh, Dr. Akila Weber, who comes with her own um, experience for her own lens as being a medical doctor, her own expertise. And so I'm excited um, to talk about health equity in California. Uh, I want to say that I am Mike Gibson. I represent the 64th State Assembly District. Those are areas of Watts, Willowbrook, where I was born and raised, Compton, Carson, Wilmington, North Long Beach, Linwood, Gardena, and also Torrance. And I want to also say this, that uh, uh, Dr. Weber, um, we unfortunately during this pandemic, uh, it has revealed something that we already knew. There's health equities in communities of color. Um, even before this pandemic, what this pandemic has done, it has certainly uh, rose to the top of all the disparities um, that exist in communities of color. And I want to conclude by, by saying this, Dr. Weber, is we still have two Californians. We have two Californians. We have one that is well adequately funded for, with resources to support health outcomes. But then you look at the opposite effect, you historically, pervasively, communities of colors have been overlooked. The Latino community, the black community, the Native American API and the LGBT community, communities that are low income have bared the blunt of this pandemic. And so I'm happy that you can, we can share today um, um, in this conversation, because um, we both represent communities of colors and we both love our communities. Well, I am so honored to be on with um, my prestigious colleague, Assemblymember Mike Gibson, um, who has been fighting this fight in the legislature and before he joined the legislature for a while. Um, I am Dr. Akila Weber. I am the assembly member for the 79th Assembly District. I joined the assembly in April of 2021, so it hasn't even been a year yet. Um, my areas include parts of San Diego, uh, La Mesa, Lemon Grove, National City, Bonita, and uh, parts of Chula Vista. And um, my other job, as alluded to, is a physician. I am an OBGYN. I specialize in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Um, and, you know, health disparities, health equity um, is, is one of the reasons why I went into medicine and one of the reasons why I, I do what I do and where I do it and why I chose to come back home because I'm a native San Diegan uh, to eventually open up my practice there. Uh, the pandemic has definitely uh, shown a light on the inequalities and equities um, within our healthcare system. And the fact that health really determines who you are and what you do and where you can go um, 
is really why it's so important that we continue to always focus on this. And, you know, I agree uh, that we, we have, I don't know if I would just say two Californias or maybe more than two Californias. We can um, notice a difference between socioeconomic lines. But I, I always caution people not to forget the significance of race and racism and the impact that that has had on, on our overall health, regardless of your social economic status. And from an OBGYN perspective, we see that all the time when we're talking about the increased risk of Black women when they get pregnant for having uh, outcomes that may lead to significant death or significant morbidity, regardless of how much money they have or what community they actually come from. And that has to do with all of the microaggressions of systemic racism that, that they have endured for their entire lives, which puts them at increased risk for things like preeclampsia um, or just basic high blood pressure or diabetes or other things that cause uh, very negative outcomes in pregnancy. And that's also why we see, regardless of your rate of your social economic status, you know, you would hear stories all the time about black people, black women going in saying that they're in pain and that would be completely ignored from health professionals. These people could be you know, as wealthy as, you know, somebody like Janet Jackson or Serena Williams or Venus Williams and their um, concerns were not being heard. So we do have, uh, you know, different silos of, of how healthcare is given and distributed. Um, that's not only along your social economic lines, but also along the racial racial lines as well. And so, you know, I, I always remind people of that whenever we start talking about disparities. It's not just for those who live in the low income communities, um, because you can be as wealthy as, as you can be. But when you walk through the door of a hospital or a clinic, people don't necessarily know how much money you make, but they do know what the color of your skin is. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And thank you very, very much. You know, <clears throat> systematically, Communities of color, uh, based on people's zip codes, uh, based on what area you live in, have systematically been excluded um, from, you know, the kind of resources and services uh, that they need. When you look at the um, unaffordability of housing, uh, when you look at food insecurity, clean air, safe neighborhoods, affordable health care, it's always nestled in, watch this, these communities of color. And so for me, as a policymaker, this is what keeps me up at night. This is what keeps me thinking about the, the grandmother, watch this, the grandmother who has to make a decision on buying groceries this month or buying insulin. We should not have, people should not have to make those kinds of decisions in the fifth world economy. That's California. And so, it, it, so we have to correct correct the, the you know, this, this system uh, when you look at people in Brentwood live 12 years longer than people in Watts and Compton, something is wrong with that picture, right? And something is fundamentally wrong with that. And so for me who represents Compton and Watts and other communities that are poor, I have to raise my voice in this position and speak out and you know speak truth to power and call a spade what a spade is just so we can have resources in our community. Look at, look at African-Americans. We are on the top of the list when it comes down to hypertension, diabetes, uh, um, um, stroke. Well, damn it, I wanna be off the list. I wanna be off that list. 
<laughs> you know, amputations because of diabetes are so perform so much in our communities, then affluent communities, something is wrong. The system is broken. Right. We need to fix it. Right. And you are, are completely correct. When I did my first social determinant of health um, hearing, you know, we had people from uh, both the county and the state um, talking about zip codes and, and you know, risk and lifespan um, and how that changes. Um, but one of the things is when you look at data and, and from a scientific standpoint, you, you got to peel back the layers because people overall in Brentwood may have a higher or a longer lifespan than those in Compton. But then you have to peel back the layer and say, well, how are African-Americans faring in Brentwood versus um, non-African-Americans and their lifespan and their risk for hypertension and diabetes? And I think you would be unfortunately surprised that, that the same things that you see in Compton, you see in, in, in Blacks and Hispanics that live in those areas as well. And so wealth does not uh, prevent you from having those things. And so I say, as we look along uh, the, in the low-income communities and we improve those things, also recognize that as we are looking from a policy level, but also for me, from a medical level, that just because you may live in a more affluent area does not still put you at risk for some of the things that you see in some of the lower-income areas. And that can be just based on your race alone. Um, and so we, we, got, we have to always make sure that we remember that as we are focusing on one area, one community, and not leave our other brothers and sisters out of the equation that are still dealing with the same things at a different level. I say that I've had more, whew, more microaggressions uh, that I've had to deal with <laughs> since I've had my MD degree than I, than I, someone else who doesn't have it because they don't, they're not necessarily viewed as a threat. Um, I wasn't called colored until I became a physician and was practicing in San Diego. Um, but you know, no one ever said that to my face um, sure. when I was just a student. And so there are still, oh, I have to take a breather, things that, that you have to, <laughs> to deal with as you um, ascend and maybe even move out of you know, the, the neighborhoods. When you live in a, a Compton, there are certain things that you have to be concerned about. Um, coming home and, and having, you know, the N-word spray painted on your garage may not be mm. one of those, right? Um, having to, to always justify why you're living there uh, may not necessarily be one of the things that you have to do, deal with in Compton, but you may have to deal with in Brentwood if you're an African-American living there. So just recognizing that um, the stressors may be different, but the stressors are still there and the stressors are still having a huge impact on one's overall health. Right. No, no, I appreciate you saying that because that's my my uh, my truth is uh, Assembly Bill 1038 dealing with health equity and the justice fund uh, that I tried to get through the legislature. The governor took language and put it in a budget trailer bill and it's three hundred million dollars one time. And now he wants to do um, a twenty five percent going after hospitals, charitable foundation, redirecting that money. Into, into into these uh, the clinics, community-based organizations, and and the reason why this this bill was done is to one to raise the, the the volume up on the disparity in communities of color, but also really get real ongoing money into uh, these communities that absolutely need it. 
that needs it. The, 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 these, these clinics are the first line of defense for most communities of color for people to go to. When you look at community-based organizations, our churches um, and community centers play a very important role in the neighborhood as a public health messenger um, that people trust, right? This is beyond politics. This effort is a true uh, opportunity for us to save lives um, as we try to change the trajectory, write a new narrative for health outcomes in underserved communities. Um, communities like, like I represent. I, I absolutely, with my very fiber, believe that the system is broken, but it also presents a great opportunity, uh, Dr. Weber, for us to fix uh, the system, put the broken pieces together, and we may even have to just throw the pieces away and start afresh um, by putting a new piece of clay on the, on the potter's wheel and molding and shaping a system that is thoughtful, a system that is well-funded, well because I realize that if, if we have healthy communities, everything else, um, you know, uh, grows from that. And let me also say this. You know, I know there's a, a you know a real issue around wildfires. Wildfires is absolutely something that needs to be addressed. Those communities are hurting, but my wildfire is gun violence. My wildfire is diabetes, hypertension. My wildfire is amputations. My wildfire are, is people making decisions to buy medicine or buy grocery. My wildfire is those kinds of situations that we need to write a new system, a new narrative, a new chapter to make it inclusive of the people who face their wildfires that I've just described. That may not be on the same level of those who are losing their homes due to real wildfires, and we don't make it any less significant. That is important, but we also have to create a balance um, moving forward when it comes down to these communities of color. I completely agree. You know, creating healthy communities is key. Um, it's key for now. It's key to having a healthy future. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I focus so much on the social determinants of health, because oftentimes people don't realize that creating healthy individuals, healthy communities, um, is not just talking about, you know, diabetes, hypertension, asthma. It's all of the other things within society that 80% of your health has to do with societal things and only 20% have anything to do with what happens in a hospital or in a clinic. And so when Good we point. talk about creating healthy communities, we've got to also focus on the education system, making sure that our kids, regardless of your zip code, are getting um, an equal and equitable education with the same opportunities so that once you graduate, they have the opportunity to either go yeah. to a four-year university, a two-year yes. university, a trade yeah. school, and be successful, right? Talking about not only having um, health insurance, because we talk about that a lot now, but it's also having access to healthcare providers and not just your primary care providers. You need access to your specialist as well. So, you know, if you have, um, if your child has seizures and you need to see a pediatric neurologist, you should be able to see them without having to drive or go out of your way an hour, an hour and a half to get to see the physician and to get the care that you need. We need to make sure that you are living in a environment which allows you to be healthy. 
So when we start talking about environmental justice issues, how clean is your water? How clean is your air? Do you have open green spaces? Do you have parks where you can go out and play mm. so that you don't have to just stay indoors watching TV and playing video games all day, increasing your chances of your kids having being overweight and obese, right? So mm. um, making sure that you have jobs job opportunities, but also jobs within your community so that you don't have to spend half your day traveling outside of your community when you really should be closer to home, closer to your family. Do you have grocery stores? That's a huge thing in some of my communities that we are food deserts. So when we talk about healthy living, when we talk about this is the foods that you need to eat so that you don't get diabetes or so that you can lose the weight that you have, that you actually have access to them. We have a whole bunch of, you know, you have your McDonald's, you have your Burger King, you have your Kentucky Fried Chicken. You, you see that rampant within certain communities, and that does not afford people the opportunity to have healthy foods to create healthy lifestyles. So when we're talking about creating healthy communities, in order to reduce your diabetes, in order to reduce your hypertension, you've got to focus on all of these things, and you've got to deal with the issue of systemic racism that certain groups, Black, Native American, and Hispanics deal with on a daily basis. So I agree with you. And that's why when I look at all of these policies, all of these bills um, that come our way from these different areas, I look at it from a lens of, of health and equity, because I know at the end of the day, it's going to have a significant impact on whether or not the people in my community and the people in California are able to develop healthy communities, regardless of their zip code. You, um, you said it all. That was a mic drop by itself. And I really appreciate that. Um, but I also wanted to touch bases. Can you tell us about your select committee that the speaker appoints you uh, to chair? Because I, I think it's fabulous. It's awesome. Yeah, so it, it's the Select Committee on the Social Determinants of Health, and it's really looking at all of these issues um, from a health lens. And, you know, we look at things in like silos as if they don't all come together and connect, but that is not the case. And so, um, you know, we had our first hearing, which was absolutely amazing on just what are the social determinants? What does that mean? Because a lot of people don't understand that what you eat, where you live, where you play, uh, where you go to school will determine your health and your health outcomes and the health outcomes for your children. And like you alluded to at the beginning, um, Assemblymember Gibson, the, the, your, your life expectancy based on your zip code, right? And that, that's, that's what you are exposed to. And so when you look into communities and you see the, the schools, right? I've got, I've got young kids. And so you go and you look and you look at the ratings um, and that determines oftentimes what kind of education they'll get, their foundation. And then that moves on to, well, are they prepared for, you know, middle and high school? And they talk about, you know, can the kid, if the kid can't read by the third grade, then that already determines where he or she will go in life. Do they have an increased risk of ending up incarcerated? Are they going to end up graduated? Are they going to end up in college? And so you look at all of these things. So in, in this select community, we're going to tackle that. We're going to look at education. We're going to look at jobs. We're going to look at environmental justice um, and see how all of these things play into the health outcomes of different communities and then figure out how we can develop different uh, legislation and policy to help counteract some of that here in California. You know, it's so funny because, you know, I think, one, you are absolutely purpose for the, that select committee and purpose for being here um, in the legislature. 
um, as well as a member of the Legislative Black Caucus. And so, as you know, I chair the Select Committee on Infectious Diseases. Um, and long before I was elected to anything in life, I was part of a, a foundation of a <clears throat> that dealt with HIV and AIDS in the African American and Latino community because it struck my family. We had a, I grew up in a church, a small church. They always say it's a little Penuel Missionary Baptist Church, a little small church on the side of the road. Well, we had a great choir in the whole nine yards, but had a, a young man who uh, was my prayer partner, grew up. He was a little bit two years older than me, who died of AIDS. The first time that we had someone in our church die of AIDS. And so that caused my world to change. <clears throat> and then uh, my godson, uh, his mother and father uh, died of, H of uh, HIV, and um, uh, he lost both his parents at six years old. And so I took on this this quest to try to educate our community around the, the around HIV and AIDS. And so it has fit perfectly in the select committee um, that infectious diseases select committee. We've had hearings dealing with the ending um, health inequities in California. <clears throat> um, when you look at this pandemic and the STIs that have increased as re relates uh, uh, to um, infectious diseases, it is off the chart. Um, and more, and whether we speak to infectious disease doctors or medical professionals, um, it is off the chart. And so where we have clinics is where individuals will go to to get receive the treatment. But if we have no clinics, then they're not there to receive the kind of treatment we have. And I'm happy also because Prior to you arriving, the Legislative Black Caucus uh, was able to uh, I, I champion uh, and secure $1.5 million in the state's budget um, to champion Assembly Bill 1105, which uh, led to uh, uh, seven, then, yeah, seven or eight um, sickle cell centers being opened up because we know that uh, mostly African-Americans uh, are subjected to sickle cell uh, trait and sickle cell disease. And we opened the first one at Martha King Community Hospital, um, and we named it after the um, founder of the city of Carson, Gil Smith's son, who died uh, mm -hmm. from sickle cell disease. Um, he died at, um, at a very young age. But get this, his mother was the first nurse at Martha King Hospital when it first opened up in the 60s. So she had an opportunity to care for, to be at work, but also care for her son at the same time, which, you know, sadly that he died at a very young age. But this, this center, sickle cell center at Martha King will stand as a testament, but also be able to treat those who are living with sickle cell um, disease. It's all about access. And we have to create the kind of synergy that allows resources from the state and federal government to go into these communities to absolutely change the, the health outcomes in our community. And so I'm glad that you're, that you're committed to this work. I'm committed to this work. And I'm glad that we're both uh, members of the Legislative Black Caucus who is equally committed um, to this kind of work um, moving forward. Yeah, you know, I am. I was so happy to see that you were chair of infectious diseases. Uh, that committee, because, you know, it's something that we don't often talk a lot about within the Black community, but it impacts us much harder than it does others. And so um, not only with, you know, HIV and AIDS and that, you know, and that crisis and, and just how we as a community would oftentimes just not talk about it and pretend like if kind of like if you don't see it, if you don't hear it, then it doesn't exist. Um, but instead, what it was was just continuing to devastate and, and ravage our communities. But the other infectious diseases that are treatable 
um, that we don't talk about and we don't get treatment for and making sure that we have clinics in our communities so that that people can be one educated to any kind of prevention can be discussed and given and three testing so that you can have very early treatment um, is, is key. And, you know, we know that certain infectious diseases are higher or highest in our, in our adolescent population. I would see it all the time in my, my, my children's clinic. Um, but it also, once again, has a disproportionate distribution along, you know, racial and socioeconomic lines. And so I um, definitely applaud you in your efforts to, to chair the infectious disease uh, select committee and, and just make sure that that discussion is always also at, at, at forefront um, and being led by an African-American man is just absolutely amazing. Well, well, thank you very much. And one of the things that I, I hear um, in, in this right ear, this is the right ear, um, saying <laughs> that we need to have a joint select committee hearing um, where both of our committees can come together and we need to look, do one, we're both in the South. So we need to do one in the South and one in the North. And we need to really have a very robust conversation <clears throat> on a multiplicity of levels to, again, mm -hmm. to help elevate. It could be a listening tour. I think it's a great time because this is the beginning of the year um, and, and, and talk to people and it can be done virtually, but I absolutely think there's something here as it relates to a next step that we can wrap our arms around and we can show that not only collaboration, but also the commitment level for us being in our position to speak truth to power, but also write a new narrative moving forward. And so I challenge you that we should do this together. No, I agree. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm listening in my left ear, my left ear over here, <laughs> um, about like listening towards, because I think a lot of, you can start change through education, right? And, um, you know, you and I are both very committed to health equity. We're both committed to really tackling and breaking down a lot of these social determinants of health. And so a lot of times, people don't realize that what they're doing, where they are, what they're eating is actually killing them, is actually putting them at greater risk for certain things. And so sometimes it's just having somebody really put the pieces of the puzzle together with you. And mm -hmm. then the light kind of goes off and says, you know what, that is right. Let me start to change what I'm doing. Let me change a little bit instead of you know, always driving around the corner. Let me walk around the corner when I'm going to visit my cousin, right? Yeah. Instead of always going over here to get some food, let me, let me, let me commit to just cooking at home one extra night a, a, a week. And so I think that um, us working together to really get this message out into our community will do tremendous as we are working on different policies to improve it from a legislative standpoint. People can, once you hear it, you can start doing just small things that will make a huge difference in the outcome of the health of yourself and your family. So you know what, I think we need to get together and start figuring out how we can kind of go on a tour up and down the state to get this information out, just this basic information and education out to our communities. I look forward to partnering with you in that endeavor. I know where time is is drawn to a close, but thank you, Dr. Weber, for, for joining me and me joining thank you. Thank you. I, I had a great time. This is awesome. 
Thanks to the members for their thoughtful insight on this topic. Before we let them go, we had to ask if discussing this issue during Black History Month is enough. Well, we don't want people to only be healthy for a month. So no, we need to be talking about this. This can be the springboard onto something that needs to be discussed on a continuous basis because your health is something, your health and your wellness is something that you've got to work on every day. It is not a one-time thing. It is not a one-month thing. It's kind of like, you know, at the beginning of New Year's, everyone says they're going to go to the gym. And then by January 31st, people have stopped doing it. No, this is something that we must continue to work on for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Right. And just want to echo um, what Dr. Weber said. Again, um, we cannot have health and wellness during Black History Month, the shortest month of the year, to be discussed. It needs to be discussed all year long. And I'm committed to, to doing that. Uh, I, you know, I'm in the gym, I work out, try to eat healthy, but you know, it's, it's also making sure that the next generation and this generation also understand how important your health, you only get one life. And so I'm committed to that end, um, to helping uh, raise the visibility and have a conversation, also educate our community um, of, of this growing and emerging um, situation around healthcare. It's important. Thanks again to Assemblymember Mike Gibson and Dr. Akila Weber for being a part of this episode. And thank you, Joel. I'm Jen Hardy. This is Look West. Thank you for listening. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. When you think of Californian politics, remember to look west.